Welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey, everyone. We are kicking off Season 4 of the Performance Nutrition Podcast, connecting you with evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to take your nutrition game to the next level. I am really excited for this upcoming season because in season four, we're going to be diving deeper into many different areas of performance nutrition. Now, if you're a regular listener, you may have noticed we've tweaked the podcast title and imaging for this season. The podcast has always been nutrition focused, but I think with the new title and website, which is performancenutritionpodcast.com, we'll be able to better reflect our goal our aim, and really our mission here, which is to provide you, the listener, with elite and actionable performance nutrition insights. Everything performance nutrition and elite athlete related will eventually be moved over to this website, so definitely check that out. And of course, in my practice, I see a lot of elite athletes, but I also see a lot of the general public trying to look better, feel better, perform better, you know, at work and at home, people like myself. Um, So if you started listening to this podcast because that describes you, then you can keep getting all those latest insights for staying fit and healthy at drbubs.com. All that information will be over there. Men and women over 35 looking to perform their best, then definitely keep checking that out for articles and content around things like blood pressure, glucose control, heart health, libido, mood, etc. Awesome. Well, let's dive into today, episode number one of season four. I'm excited to be sitting down with Dr. Justin Roberts, PhD, a principal lecturer in sport and exercise sciences at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge in the UK, where he specializes in applied nutrition with a central aim of exploring dietary and nutrient supplementation strategies to support exercise training and recovery. Now, Justin recently played a central role in the International Society of Sport Nutrition's recent position stand on ultra-marathon running. And this is entitled Nutritional Considerations for Single-Stage Ultra-Marathon Training and Racing. So today we dive into this paper. I think you'll enjoy my conversation here with Justin around the metabolic demands, fueling fundamentals for ultra-marathons, as well as things like how hydration plays a role, uh, the role of tryptophan and central fatigue, supplementation, And just a ton more here from Justin, who is a wealth of knowledge and also someone who has participated in an ultramarathon, so he can speak from experience as well. Again, you can find the links and the expanded summary of the podcast uh, in the show notes at performancenutritionpodcast.com. And of course, on this topic of ultramarathons, if you're interested in more, you've definitely got to circle back to last season, season three, episode 23 with world champion Zach Bitter talking about his ultramarathon prep and race day mindset. You could also check out season three, episode 26 with Dr. Andy Sparks discussing things like beetroot juice, bicarbonate, and where this measurement error fits in an endurance sport. Phenomenal. Let's do this. Season four, episode number one with Dr. Justin Roberts. Enjoy. Justin, thanks so much for taking the time today. No problem. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Terrific. Well, listen, I think a great place to start would be 
giving listeners a little bit more info about your background and your journey to your current role at Anglia Ruskin University in the UK. Okay, um, so I did my first degree in uh, in the area of sports science, and um, that led me into kind of personal training and strength conditioning. Um, and it was around that time that I got heavily interested in nutrition, um, particularly sort of seeing people do things that uh, you know you you normally wouldn't expect people to achieve certain goals doing certain diets. So that got me really interested in in the nutrition side of things. So. Um, I studied uh, a master's degree, which involved uh, more clinical nutrition, looking at um, omega omega three fish fatty acids and, and exercise training with metabolic syndrome, mm-hmm. um, and that led me on to do a PhD, which is more to do with like metabolism and recovery. Um, and as around the same sort of time of that, I also studied nutritional therapy. Um, so I'm a registered nutritional therapist as well as a, an accredited sport uh, and an exercise scientist. Wow, phenomenal. And the perfect segue into, you know, we were talking beforehand around your background in endurance sport as well. And you know, looking forward to talking about the uh, recent position stand you put out with the International Society of Sports Nutrition around nutritional considerations for ultra marathon training and racing. Can you tell listeners a little bit about how this project came about? Yeah, well, um, it was really my colleague, uh, Dr. Nick Tiller, who um, approached me, he he he's what i would call the real ultra person he's nice. much more uh, advanced than me in terms of ultras we've both competed in a, a variety of events from ironman triathlons through to you know multi-day um endurance races such as the marathon de sabla um mm-hmm. and um i'm i would i would call myself more of the kind of recreational ultra and i would call him more of the hardcore um super fast ultra nice <laughs> nice um but it was Nick that approached me with, um, he had this idea about effectively writing a, a literature review because both of us were uh, being approached by a number of uh, runners for advice about um, nutrition mm-hmm. and specifically how to, to fuel during training and racing. And there were two very distinct uh, questions we were getting. But uh, Nick had already done quite a lot of work already kind of compiling literature and, and writing material. But um asked for my input from a nutrition perspective but also where we could take this and i um had already published a number of studies in uh, the international uh, journal for the society of sports nutrition and i kind of suggested maybe we should approach them with a, re- a view of doing a position stand um which of course they agreed and they liked the idea and actually when i spoke to the uh, chief editor it was um it was on their their hit list of, of, of position stands to write. And Terrific. one of the things he said to me was the reason it hadn't been written today is because it's such a big task, uh, such an onerous um, area with so many things that you could potentially cover. So um, we set about starting to collate information further and starting to compile a, 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 a semi-position stand, if you like, and we realized we had so much information that we didn't know quite what to do with it. So we ended up bringing it right down to the basics. What what should runners do during training? What does the literature suggest? What's our opinion as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also for racing as well, because um, they're obviously two very distinct areas. But also... Um, we decided quite late on in the whole procedure to narrow it down further to single stage ultramarathons because there was just too much information out there to give clear advice um, to all different types of ultra racing. So 
we focused on running and we focused on single stage events. Terrific. That's, that's obviously really crucial to point out, isn't it, for listeners who are maybe more familiar with team sport nutrition or physique nutrition, yeah. you know, ultra events can, can range in terms of obviously distances and, and, and days that are involved. Um, and so if we start off the conversation here around just daily requirements, like they're influenced by so many different factors for even a recreational versus, you know, elite uh, runner. Could you walk the listeners through some of the factors that would play into the daily caloric requirements? Oh, wow. There's so many. Um, well, as we kind of highlighted in the paper, it's, um, it's quite difficult because instead of just saying there's a, you know, athlete should be eating this amount of, uh, of energy uh, or food, we obviously stated that there were many factors that would influence a, a person's daily calorific intake. And I'm, I'm referring specifically around training here as opposed to uh, ca- calorie requirements for racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but specifically, you know, when you look at things like the basal metabolic rate of, of an individual, um, how much non-exercise activity they might be doing in the background, which will be highly variable between people. Yeah, sedentary um, job versus somebody who's moving around all day, right? Absolutely. I mean, that could range by several hundred calories easily, um, and that might change someone's requirements, uh, which might not appear to be um, dramatic, but over time could all uh, add up. Um and obviously, one of the big concerns in the current uh, literature is this this concept of relative energy deficiency in in sports. So reds as, as a short. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the big issues I see with a lot of athletes is this kind of classic: uh, either eating the same foods all the time or not eating enough of what they might require uh, in terms of calorific um, intake. So. Basal metabolic rates, uh, daily activity, what type of foods you're eating, um, what you're, how you're training. So just the, the training requirements, specifically in terms of um, how much training you're doing, volume of training, and intensity of training. These will all have an impact on your daily calorific needs. Yeah, it is fascinating. You mentioned sort of the fueling and underfueling, and of course we'll definitely get into the conversation around carbohydrates and fats, which is a really polarized one when it comes to um, life in general. And of course with, with ultra running, but maybe let's first jump in around protein intake, you know, protein requirements for ultra endurance athletes. You know, I think for the typical, you know, the general ultra runner, these recommendations are likely higher than they're, they're probably used to or that they would assume. So can you outline the recommended protein intake and, Give us some some background as to why it's so important for ultra runners. Well, I think the first thing to just um, note um, is that when we talk about ultra running, we're talking about distances that are typically longer than a marathon. So, for most single stage ultras, you're talking um, you know, anywhere from six hours onwards would would kind of get into the zone of of ultra uh, distance. Um, and of course, if you start talking about um, single stage at the higher end, you could be talking 24 hours. Um, if you're talking multi days, you could be talking 40, 48 hours plus. So bonkers. the type of training that goes into that will be considered quite high volume and quite long distance compared to maybe half marathon or marathon distance training. Um, and as a result, the demands on the body are, are going to be more sustained. Um, so when we looked at the literature, I mean, the, the, the problem with a lot of the material we read is that often contemporary 
research gives very broad guidelines, you know, sort of 1.2 to 2.1 grams of protein per kilogram body mass per day. Um, And so when we tried to look a bit further, it seemed that nitrogen balance, or rather this ability to maintain a degree of uh, um, uh, positive balance, seems to lie somewhere around the 1.6 grams per kilo per day. Now, if you then add in other factors, not just muscle synthesis, but other factors associated with protein demands and also calorific requirements, the um, approximate estimate would be somewhere between 1.6 and even as high as 2.5 grams per kilo per day. So I think protein's um, not ne- not necessarily underestimated, but I think it's very important. Yeah, it can almost be it not quite overlooked, but yeah, underestimated in the sense of the even some of the you know coaches out there who coach running, you know, typically wouldn't think to get up to a gram per pound, even more so during specific training blocks and. As you guys point out in the paper, this is can be pretty crucial for you know recovery, immunity, all these various factors that can take a beating with all that training volume. And you know, mm-hmm. you talk about long bouts of training as well being protein consumption being particularly important after the long bouts of training. Can you circle back to that a little bit in terms of recovery? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, the, the sort of literature points towards. Um, the idea that it's it's more to do with the total amount of protein that's being consumed, but if we isolate the recovery period specifically, the suggestion is that um, taking small boluses or dosages of um, of protein after training may improve the the impact on recovery, particularly if you're building in resistance training alongside endurance training. So you know some of the literature talked about twenty to thirty grams of protein. Um, within a short time frame after training, such as within an hour. Um, but it seems to me that um, an inter- intermediate protein strategy, so 20 grams every three hours, might be more uh, effective in the longer term. Yeah, it is um, interesting when we look at just the stress levels, the mechanical stress associated with the you know the distances that are being covered and, of course, you know making a protein that much more important. Um the metabolic overload as well. I mean, the, it's uh, really something that nutritional practitioners as well as athletes need to be cognizant of because it's going to be fueling potentially a lot more frequently than they might be used to. Mm. And interesting enough, I mean, just from my own personal experience of working with uh, ultra runners um, and, and endurance athletes, I should add, it seems to me that many athletes are quite aware of this and they actually seem to eat a reasonable amount of protein as in you know the 1.4 to 1.6 category mm-hmm. or range but i suppose with an ultra athlete it's the awareness that maybe their needs could be higher and it's it's this could the word could that is kind of interesting here because everyone's different and everyone will have their own individual requirements so one individual might only need 1.3 1.4 grams per kilo but another individual might need 1.9 2.0 one grams per kilo and this is what makes it a whole, whole whole area quite difficult yeah it's definitely the art of the practice and mm. you know taking into consideration you know that subjective wellness and immunity and how they're adapting to training and all those factors obviously going into Absolutely. figuring out what the right uh, dose is and if we transition now to carbohydrate needs i mean these are tremendous distances that need to be covered although at a slower pace so you know what are the carbohydrate needs for ultra runners what are the suggestions there well, again, you know, if we're, if we're talking about training only at this stage, um, there's a real, <laughs> there's a real um, parallel in the literature between 
whether athletes should eat a low carbohydrate diet or whether they should eat a high carbohydrate diet and i'm forever being asked this question uh, it seems that every talk i do i'm always asked should athletes eat a high fat diet or a high carb diet um i think the important thing to remember is that with ultra distance uh, training <clears throat> there's a heavy reliance on glycogen on stored glycogen and as a result the literature pretty much convincingly and overwhelmingly supports the idea of uh, a high carbohydrate diet so to give that some context, around 60% of energy intake would be considered moderately to high mm -hmm. uh, levels. So in, in training, that might require something like 5 to 8 grams of carbohydrate per kilo body mass, which if anyone's ever tried that, trying to get up to 8, 9 yeah, uh, that's grams. Yeah, that's, that's hard work, right? Quite, tra quite challenging. Um, and of course, if you've got people with even higher mileage, um, those values might even be higher. So seven to 10 grams per kilo is often quoted. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously, you know, muscle repair, but central nervous system as well. And as you mentioned, it's difficult to get up to those seven, mm. eight, nine, ten 10 grams per kilo. And that's where obviously liquid nutrition can be really impactful to be able to try to achieve some of those numbers. And, you know, in the paper, you also talk about some train low strategies. Could you outline how that potentially could be, you know, an effective training strategy to help us, uh, you know, this, promote some this of these adaptations. A, absolutely. This was actually, um, I'm sure Nick will listen to this at some stage, but um, this was actually <laughs> a hot topic when we were writing the paper because um, there were lots of debates between us about whether athletes should actually try to consume a low-carbohydrate diet. And the, the general premise goes something like this, that um, the research suggests that if you're training in a, a, a low glycogen state or a semi-depleted state, that you will end up getting certain specific adaptations that might be favorable in the longer term, such as um, enhanced uh, fat metabolism during exercise. So in the paper, we kind of suggested there were two, there might be two practical ways of doing this. One could be, you know, training in a fasted state in the morning when your liver glycogen might well be up to about 80% depleted already. So you're, you're placing more demand on, on fat stores to, to, to support the training. Mm -hmm. And the other one, training twice a day where, where you're kind of depleting muscle glycogen and then further training in, on, on that or, or fueling around one session only, like a later session in the day. And there's some research that suggests that, um, or rather supports the idea that, uh, uh, oxidative pathways and fat metabolism pathways can be accelerated and also that there might be upregulations in certain uh, protein signaling pathways that might favor um, endurance athletes. Um, the real challenge with all of this is we, we need to see more research being done specific to ultra marathon running. Um, because it's a fine so line, isn't it, when you get into sort of a chronic training with lowered intakes, isn't it? Exactly. And then we, we, we also hinted at that and suggested that at the beginning of a, a training period or season uh, when you're trying to get these acute adaptations but then also chronic adaptations there may be an advantage to training periodically in low low glycogen or low carbohydrate states but then the evidence the current evidence suggests that if you're looking at performance specifically higher intensity performance that training with um either depleted um, muscle glycogen and or a ketogenic style diet might not be favorable for those that are trying to in, actually obtain a high level of performance. 
it's interesting as well when we think about just the number of competitions that some of these athletes will perform over the course of a year. And so, you know, when you're doing a hundred miler every every quarter or so, that could definitely add up towards the end of a year, can it? It can. And again, we, we, when we we actually interviewed um, quite a few ultra runners for this paper, and we 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 did this through a, a research study that was. Um, uh, was given the ethical approval and um, in interviewing all of these different types of athletes that range from I would say novice ultra runners through to world champion or world-class level um, ultra runners not one of them there was not no consistency it was very different across the the types of athletes and one thing that was very clear is it, very few of them restrict carbohydrates mm-hmm yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see just how it's difficult in the general public to kind of dissociate between, you know, diets like a low-carb or ketogenic diet might be effective for somebody with struggling with a metabolic condition or type 2 diabetes, you know, typically because inherently it's going to reduce ultra-processed foods, right? Carbohydrates go down, caloric intake goes down, sometimes significantly. But on the flip side, if you're an active individual or an athlete, all of a sudden that huge caloric deficit uh, and lack of carbohydrates is, is becomes a real problem, right? Absolutely. And and as we said, we kind of, there may be some advantage at the early part of a training period, but um, we have to remember that many of these athletes will be training at least every other day, if not every day, and in some cases twice a day. So just to manage that over time, the, the carbohydrate requirements are likely going to be a lot higher than expected. And that's when we can also get into things around injury risk as well, right? If carbohydrate intake's not up to speed or if we're relying solely on fats, then we can potentially have some you know, deficiencies that might uh, crop up in terms of you know, various nutrients. Um, so definitely th- things for practitioners to think about when it comes to, to those approaches. Um, so we've talked you know, training nutrition. How does the story change when we talk about race day nutrition? And, and maybe a good place to start is actually just the enormous energy expenditure that's happening uh, during these races. Can you uh, fill people in on exactly you know what somebody might be expending during a typical 50-mile race? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, one, one thing to just add to that before we get into the actual race itself yeah. is, uh, you know, when people talk about race, they talk about race day. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm still doing some races but certainly nowhere near the level of uh, dr tiller but um I, when you look at racing itself you have to think about the period leading up to it as well because mm-hmm. that needs to be taken into consideration in the context of the race strategy um what makes a single day quite challenging is it depends on the type of race you're doing <clears throat> so for example you know you could be doing um and let's just say you're doing a hundred mile race <clears throat> where the pace is quite slow as in maybe six to, to eight kilometers an hour on average yeah you know, a, a lightweight athlete might expend something like seven thousand calories that sort of territory whereas a slightly heavier like 70 kilo athlete might expend closer to ten thousand calories um wow. just in the context of just the running and so when you break that down that would that works out something like about 350 to 400 calories an hour for a, a heavier or slightly heavier individual and when you think of it that that, that context trying to keep getting that in is it's hard work yeah. it's, it's almost so and in fact I, I haven't actually seen any research in the field that reports athletes matching their calorific demands if anything it's quite the opposite well yeah absolutely 
And it, I mean, it is, you know, in the paper, you guys talk about, you know, a 50 kilogram athlete on a 50 miler at a pace of about eight kilometers an hour expending, yeah, about 3,500 calories. And as you mentioned, you know, 70 kilogram athlete, almost 5,000 calories. I mean, that's uh, some significant expenditure. And, you know, mm-hmm. when the, it's an interesting race because obviously the, the, the pace is so slow that even the training, the training runs are at a faster pace than even the competition um, mm-hmm. pace, which is obviously the flip side of, of typically if you're running a half marathon or a marathon. Um, and so when we look at, you know, reasons why athletes get tired, you know, even before, uh, before fueling, you know, what are some of the, obviously we, have, we can run out of substrate, but this idea of a central fatigue hypothesis, what's going on here? Okay, well, um, one, one thing just to uh, backtrack to the, the calories, um, <clears throat> you know, we, we're talking about distance only here, and we have to also factor in other considerations such as terrain, environmental terrain. Most ultra runs are not on flat surfaces that are nicely paved or nicely grassed. There are you know, very undulating, very different terrain. The, the, the environment itself, the weather can also have, have a, a big role to play in, in metabolic demands as well. Um, if we if we look if we look at say um, central fatigue, there's there's a there's a relationship between um, time and and also the point where someone starts to fatigue. So, you know, if you're doing prolonged exercise in excess of four, five, six hours, which ultra running would come into quite easily, that will increase the metabolism of um, a chemical called 5-hydroxytryptamine uh, or 5-HT for short, or serotonin in the brain, which is as as that starts to be produced, we see common symptoms around you know, lethargy, uh, tiredness, maybe drowsiness, maybe even reduced motivation. So um, as a result, there's a, a connection between tryptophan and branch chain amino acids. So the idea is that um, uh, there's a competition here. So um, if we if we start to deplete our levels of uh, branch chain amino acids, this might lead to increased levels of, of um, tryptophan. So the idea is that can branch chain amino acids have a role to play in reducing or maybe delaying uh, that level of fatigue in some individuals? Um, and that's where the general concept of BCAs from this perspective comes in. And how does the research look there in terms of potential ability to be able to offset that i mean it seems like <clears throat> obviously in those types of you know the duration of these events um combating fatigue has got to be pretty high up on the list in terms of uh, priorities so uh, you know is there a, a potential role there for bca supplementation with the mechanism being uh, <clears throat> elucidated there, there is in, in our opinion there is definitely a role to play and it's, it's definitely feasible that um branch state amino acids may well uh, offset um, fatigue in, in some individuals. The problem is we need more um, specific research to ultramarathons. And the, the research we looked at was to, uh, involving more cyclists over several hours. So it mm-hmm. might, but it's not necessarily very specific to ultramarathon running. Um, and in those studies, taking BCEs, particularly when these athletes were exercising in, in hotter conditions, um, had a role to play in, in prolonging time to exhaustion. So in the case of bringing that or, or, or translating that to ultra marathon is difficult, but if there is an overlap, it suggests that some individuals might benefit if um, the event is quite prolonged. Interesting. And if we if we actually circle back to that race day nutrition and talk about 
again, you know, carbohydrate needs whilst one's running. You know, is there a range there that the research is telling us that for an ultra event, athletes should be aiming for? Well, we looked at um, a number of studies on this that where where um, I should also mention that within the paper, we didn't exclude uh, any type of study. And we made it very clear where the evidence category was coming from. Um, and re- the reason for that is because most of the literature on ultra marathon specific running has been conducted at events, which is kind of understandable. Uh, it's hard to set these things up in a laboratory condition. Um so we were looking at some events or looking at papers where they had worked with athletes in the field and as a result um we're, we're taking information from that perspective what what ultra marathon runners have actually done in different races and um with regards to the carbohydrate there was a, there's a clear pattern forming in the literature which in which if you look at finishers versus non-finishers um, it seems to me that those that finish races are able to maintain a more consistent pattern of feeding. And so, for example, um, and again, I should also add that within that, the, the literature suggests there's a big range between athletes. So it's not as if they're all eating the same sort of amounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ranges could be quite different. So, for example, um, you know, uh, a, a slower runner might average maybe 20 to 30 grams an hour of carbohydrate whereas a a a finisher or a faster finisher might actually be able to tolerate higher amounts of carbohydrate such as around 40 to 60 grams an hour um so there's this kind of range that uh, is suggested in in the literature yeah that's sometimes the case where unfortunately it can be translated poorly from coach to, to athlete and if we have some of those novice runners fueling at higher rates than they should be fueling at, you know, more towards the 60 rather than the 20, then this is definitely a situation where at some point we could get some rebound hypoglycemia or, or bonking at certain stage, correct? I think I think there's another problem there as well, which is because the ranges are so broad, there's, there's one message that, I don't know if we said it in the paper, but it seems to me that there's a, there's a case for trial and error here in training um, to try and understand where your limit is. Um, you know, the contemporary uh, sports drinks research suggests that values as high as 90 grams an hour from mixed carbohydrate sources might be the more higher level of tolerance. But, you know, having done these events ourselves, I don't know that many um, ultra runners that would just stick to a, a pure sports drink strategy and, and probably wouldn't tolerate it for longer than a few hours anyhow. And in fact, pretty much all of them ate solid food at some level during their races. Um, now, because of that very high range, it means that some people are are likely or more likely going to experience from some sort of GI distress during the event. And so, to me, that's, that that spells that that sort of screams a little bit of this needs to be practiced and trialed and tested in training to understand where the individual uh, tolerance level lies. Um, and this concept of gut training has also come out in the literature as well. Yeah, it's it's obviously critical for athletes to be able to, even recreational athletes, to be able to find that sweet spot where they can tolerate certain amounts. Um, I'm sure everyone's experienced going out on a run and having, you know, slow gastric emptying and the discomfort that one gets I mean, from that. I mean, one, yeah, absolutely. And one thing we did pick up on is that it seems to it seems to us anyhow that um, if the calorific intake is kept quite low, particularly for very long, as in hundred mile events. 
Um, so if, if you're consistently eating under about 200 calories an hour, uh, this suggests that um, you're more likely going to have problems later on. Um, so trying to maintain that higher uh, calorific and to an extent carbohydrate intake consistently over time is part of the key uh, to, to success in, in, in ultramarathon running. And Justin, was there any specific snack items or f- food items that were common or more popular amongst the runners that you interviewed? <laughs> uh, no, not I, I'm, really. sure, I'm sure. I'm sure everyone's just wanting to know. You know, what were they? What were they consuming? Well, we 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 kind of um, <clears throat> we kind of stumbled onto a kind of um, I, I wouldn't call it Pandora's box, but um, when we interviewed uh, the these uh, number of uh, ultra runners. It, it just seemed to me that everyone's got their own opinion and their own strategy, which is fine. Uh, we have to work with the individual as individuals, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, some people will mix and match their foods with with um, more liquid-based foods such as gels and to, and occasionally sports drinks. Um, some people were eating things like um, homemade energy bars or, or granola bars. Other people were snacking on um, dried fruits such as. Um, like banana chips, for example, or even watermelon was quoted. Um, and then other people were trying to focus on getting that balance between carbohydrate and protein stroke fat through things like um, beef jerky or um, chorizo or salami sticks or something like that. And on the fat side of things, obviously at this pace, you know, that would be something that athletes might turn to more, obviously more frequently than in a half marathon or a marathon as they you know, when we talk about, and maybe this comes into the supplementation category, but even around foods of, you know, whether it's nut butters or, you know, <clears throat> ketone supplements, MCT oil, some of these things that are more popular now with the ultra crowd. Yeah, again, we, we when we look at the sort of food choices that um, our our, our um, survey group were, were, were consuming, um, many of them weren't actually taking MCTs as MCTs. They were taking MCT energy bars, so bars that had been enhanced with medium-chain triglycerides. Yeah. Um, but most of them seemed to get their fat sources from meat-based products or um, nuts, nuts, nut-based products such as cashews, for example, came up quite a lot, and um, nut butters came up quite a lot. Um but it seemed to me that when we, when we were speaking to to them, I, I don't know how clear this is in the literature, but it seems that many of them start off on a, a carbohydrate, almost sweet-like approach, and then swap to almost like a salt-savory approach, which we we found quite interesting, and it certainly matched our experiences as well. Interesting, yeah, it's, that palatability factor, and um, you know, for yourself when you were when you made that switch, was you know, what what were some of the kind of inherent symptoms or reasons that you felt that you made the switch over? Um, I think part of it was, um, I wouldn't call it taste fatigue, but um, I'm going to use that term. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was, it's like too much sweet. Yeah, and certainly I, f- I found this in, in Ironmans, for example, where it's just got to the point where I, I haven't felt like drinking or eating any more sugar, uh, specifically from gels or, or sports drinks. And there's been a desire to eat something a little more salty or savory. And that could also overlap the point where you start to feel a little bit more dehydrated than you're aware of. And at that point there, I think the whole area of hydration and and, um, electrolyte concentration probably takes over a little bit. A great point. And, you know, on the hydration front, obviously, you know, six, eight, ten plus hours running, you know, when we look at 
the hydration needs. Obviously, there's significant sweat losses from running these kind of distances. You know, what are some of the typical losses that you might see from an ultra marathon runner in a competition? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I, I'd have to go back and look at the literature on that one, but um, certainly when we've we've done trials in under control conditions in under laboratory conditions with uh, Ironman triathletes, for example, uh, we've seen values ranging from in male male subjects ranging from 0.7 kilos an hour through to 1.9 uh, kilos an hour of sweat of pure pure water loss. Wow. Uh, so it's highly variable. Um, in in females, it's been lower than this. It's been about 0.3 of a kilo. So that's roughly about 300 milliliters of of of, of sweat or water loss, um, through to about 0.8 of a kilo. So it's highly variable. The thing is, though, um, that may not necessarily be consistent over the whole um, duration of the race. Gotcha. So, but. Um, one of the things that was quite clear in, in when we looked at how to hydrate for these races is it's all well and good looking at how much water or sweat someone's losing in an hour, but to try and consistently get that back on board is incredibly tough, if not impossible. So looking at gastric emptying rates, you'd probably be better off recommending lower amounts, but more frequently. So I think in the paper, we quoted something like 400 to 700 milliliters an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, sort of small and often is a good uh, heuristic for a lot of folks and ultra runners in particular. And of course, on the salt and electrolyte side of things, is that um, you know sodium obviously playing a key role if, if runners are losing, you know, or sweating a lot. And of course, oftentimes these races are in hot environments as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, <clears throat> we we um, we kind of came to the, again the whole concept of do people need to take uh, sodium tablets or um, electrolytes um, is is not controversial, but it is you know contended in the in the literature. Mm-hmm. Um, we, when we've gone through races ourselves and and taken on board electrolytes versus not taking on electrolytes, we've noticed big differences in ourselves. Um, when we then look at uh, what the literature suggests um, in terms of um, recovery from from exercise, but also maintaining that uh, or minimizing that electrolyte loss. Um, two things that came out. One was that um, the amounts in most commercial products are often uh, potentially lower than what you might lose in, say, sweat. So being aware of or being mindful of how much sodium you might need to get on board, um, if you're not doing it through food intake, you might need to consider uh, additional electrolyte supplements, um, which we, 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 we talk about in the, in the paper in more depth. Yeah, it's interesting in the paper. Obviously, you talk about how you know typically an ultra marathon training session is going to cause substantial dehydration. Yet, only about an estimated twenty percent of endurance runners are actually monitoring their hydration status. And so, you know, as you mentioned, you know, adding salt to food or obviously during in, in water during during training and races is key. But that day to day hydration, obviously independent of training, being also really important just to keep those levels topped up. Correct. Yeah. And if we you know, round this out by shifting gears to the supplement side of things, you know, when we look at these long events lasting multiple hours and where discomfort and uh, pain and, and pushing through is important, obviously things like caffeine come to mind as potential strategies to help, you know, resu- reduce perceived exertion and things like that. Throughout the paper, you know, what were some of the supplements that came up as potential um, potential strategies for, for athletes looking to perform? 
Well, obviously, you, you, know, you, you mentioned caffeine there, which is probably the headline for us, because um, <clears throat> when you start looking at ultra distance, particularly towards the latter third of the, of the race, where fatigue is, is, is going to be setting in, um, <clears throat> the suggestion of caffeine having a, a stimulant effect, but more specifically used towards the end of the race, uh, was highlighted in, in, the, in the paper and at a lower dose potentially. So it's, it's not as if we should be focusing on high dose caffeine uh, acutely but more sort of lower dose but specifically if they're taking it over several hours but focusing on caffeine intake to stimulate the the, the individual uh, towards the end of the race um so that one we, we played on in, in the paper um the other the, the other supplements we kind of came across which were very interesting other than mcts which um hasn't really been well supported in the literature was the use of ketone esters um now the big problem we've got with many of these supplements is that there's very little research specific to single stage ultra events. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's been recent insights into um, ketone esters, which have been used alongside carbohydrate repletion strategies to enhance um, effectively fuel metabolism during exercise, which I think could be quite useful for the future. And I think it's where we need to see some more uh, specific research to sustained uh, running. Uh, that would be quite interesting to know. Um, and the other uh, areas we looked at were um, things like vitamins and minerals. It's interesting to note that um, a lot of athletes do use uh, supplements, acute supplements such as vitamin C, <clears throat> which may have an effect on um, the immune system and may have uh, preventative effects, if you like, on upper respiratory tract infections. Um but you know, when you actually look at whether these these supplements have any beneficial impact on on performance, the the evidence is is pretty much um, limited. Um, so it's difficult to sort of answer a question whether ultra endurance athletes need to be supplementing directly. Um, and then the other one was obviously things like sports drinks we talked about as well. Terrific, and you know, obviously mindset plays a huge role in these events that are, you know, maybe more mental than physical and. As someone, I believe you've done the Marathon des Sables, right, yourself? Mm-hmm. What, yes. You know, can you share with listeners your experience and, and, and what that was like uh, five uh, days in the desert? Painful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually did it the same year as Nick. Um, so um, when we did the race, uh, Nick was literally in the tent opposite with me, uh, opposite to me. He was with the a more experienced um, elite group, and I was with uh, a group of runners who were uh, very, very good. But I was the the recreational one, I would say. Um, my experience um, physically, I was. I think both of us were in very good places uh, physically uh, and mentally. Uh, we both had prepared in in the heat. We had used heat acclimation as a strategy to to get us to. Uh, the race we'd also trialed the foods we were going to use in in sahara ahead of the race so we were well prepared for what we were up against um what we weren't prepared for is just how bad the feet get <laughs> yeah um, my, my own experience personally and i'm, I'm sure nick would uh, support this was um it wasn't so much chafing of the feet as in rubbing it was more uh, blisters underneath the feet from the pressure of just continuous running yeah um that's what affected me the most. Um, in terms of the, the, the fueling, um, interestingly enough, we just stuck to the strategy of a morning breakfast, which was a, an expedition-style food, uh, an evening meal, which was an expedition-style food. Yeah. <laughs> um, and these were just high-calorie, freeze-dried 
um, meals, obviously because you have to carry everything you need in the desert. Um, throughout the day, we were kind of snacking on small things, sesame snap uh, biscuits, for example, or the odd gel here and there, or maybe half a sports drink. It was, and maybe trail mixed foods. It was kind of spread out over the day. We were also taking salt tablets, which were kind of given to us by the the organizer, and we stuck to that because we um, we had read an awful lot around dehydration and, and hyponatremia. Um, we had zero problems when it came to hydration and um, fueling. Uh, the only point where I would say it got to me a little bit was on the, the double marathon stage, which was um, day four going into day five, mm-hmm. which then gets into the ultra single stage category. I found it quite hard to eat after about 10 hours. So I remember getting to one of the checkpoints and thinking, right, I need to sit down and actually eat something here. And I just didn't feel hungry. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. And I was almost telling myself I need to force feed a little bit or kind of a bit of tolerance here. Hijack the brain a little bit to get something in, right? A little bit. And it, it was, it, this is quite interesting because after the race, I spoke to a number of colleagues who had done the race and they had almost similar um, experiences. Um those that didn't eat seem to be the ones that struggled. Those that actually managed to get something in were able to. What we found was that they, by kind of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word force feeding, but kind of just tolerating a little bit of food. Within about half an hour, we were all able to maybe get a bit more in, and that's what allowed us to keep going through through the dark the dark patch, if you like. Wow, yeah, that double marathon fourth day has definitely got to be something else. Um, <laughs> having not done it myself, only only trekked around the Sahara. Um, what was that like crossing the finish line on the fifth day? Then, when you when you put all those miles in and uh, and all the blisters, I got I got to be honest, it was um, it mixed emotions, but a bit of an anticlimax because um, I remember when I'd finished. For me, Sahara finished on day. Five, the beginning of day five, I came in quite early hours of the morning. And because I had done the, the, the double marathon, in my head, I'd already finished. Um, sure. So I found the next two stages quite easy in, in some respects because I'd mentally, I was over the, the big one. And I remember on the very last day, <laughs> this is quite funny, I, I remember fitting with my colleagues in my tent and uh, saying, what do we absolutely need to take home with us? Um, like sleeping bag. So put your sleeping bag in your in your rucksack. That's it. So we were literally just throwing everything <laughs> out of our bags on the last day, and therefore I was I, I was actually running with next to nothing on my back. So the last day I remember running quite well, quite quite hard for the whole distance. Um, and so at the very end of Sahara, and obviously I'm sure the course changes every year, but at the very end you come out of the desert. And as you come out of the desert and you approach this this town, um, I can't remember the name of it. You go through a, a very poor area, a very um, uh, an area where a lot of people are just literally um, living in in very poor conditions. Mm-hmm. And I remember running through this, and that kind of emotionally affected me. Um, so you you go through all this where you're seeing you know local people living in very tough conditions, and then you finish in this town where everyone's celebrating. So yeah, mixed emotions is probably the answer. Yeah, okay. I can't imagine, obviously, between the topography and the scenery and the physical output and the mindset and just the situations you mentioned, it must be uh, pretty pretty intense emotions on both sides. And 
Yeah. Justin, if we, if we come back here, you know, I appreciate you carving out some time here today. When we look at the evolution of research in this area, you know, where do you think things should be going or what might be coming down the pipeline in the next five or 10 years? Well, in terms specific to ultra running. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, personally, what I would like to see is more funded research. Um, people actually getting involved with, with research around the world to look at um, some of the things we, we highlight in the paper um, to, to basically support what we've done. I think this position stand is is a, a good starting point. I think over the next five years, we're going to see some new updates and some new changes, which will probably challenge some of the things we've put in this paper. Um, I hope they do. I, I'd like to see it evolve. Um, I'd like to see more practical recommendations that are supported by controlled research as well as field-based research. Um, so I would, yeah, I think I think research is the key word. Um, I'd also like to see some more um, evidence of some of the supplements and whether they're actually benefiting runners or not. Um, I think there's some recent research that's just coming out now looking at uh, ketogenic diets and sustained performance, which I think will continue to be evolving as well as things like intermittent fasting um, approaches. So, yeah, I can see the, the whole area evolving over the next five years. And I think then we'll have some more concrete ideas of what people should be doing in these events. Fantastic. Justin, listen, I appreciate you carving out some time today. Terrific insights. Encourage everyone to to read the papers, especially if you're a, uh, obviously if you're a practitioner. But if you're an ultra runner, it's a mandatory reading to so you can perform your best in 2020. So, you know, Justin, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your terrific research? <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind. Um, I'm I'm based at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge in the UK. Um, you can contact me via the, on the paper. You've got uh, my my correspondence details. Um, yep. Which uh, and myself and Dr. Tiller are both freely contactable on the paper. So um, do feel free to get in touch if you'd like to ask me any questions. Phenomenal. Thanks so much, Justin. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Once again, you can find all the links and the expanded podcast summaries at performancenutritionpodcast.com. And lastly, a big thank you to everyone who picked up a copy of my recently released book, Peak. I got so many fantastic messages from athletes, coaches, nutritionists, sports scientists. Really overwhelming to have played a small role in inspiring and connecting folks with experts to really help continue their journey. So massive, massive thank you to everyone. Thank you for the, the notes and the comments. Keep those coming in. Greatly appreciated. Uh, we did also crack the top 1% of all books sold on Audible. So if you picked up a copy, thank you again. And of course, if you didn't, well, maybe you can help jump on board and see if we can crack the top 100 books on Audible here in 2020. Awesome. To wrap up, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs, or you can shout out to us on the new Instagram handle for the podcast, which is at pn underscore podcast on instagram that's pn underscore podcast thanks again and see everyone next week the dr bubs performance podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional you should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the dr bubs performance podcasts